Welcome back to the program. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, we love you and thank you for this gift of Holy Week. And Lord, as we are close to the Triduum, the Sacred Triduum, Lord, these um, holy three days where we enter into a deeper participation with you in your saving death, in your redemptive death and resurrection from the dead, I thank you, Lord our God. I thank you with profound gratitude for loving us so much, for taking care of us so well. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for all that you all that you do. And we make this prayer, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, I got four things to do. The first is I have a message to share from yesterday I didn't get to. Oh, it's like almost really even the, like the most important message. It was from St. Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, talking about the wounds of Christ on the risen Christ, that the risen Lord Jesus still has five wounds, the wounds on his hands, his feet, and his side. And what is that all about? What, what's the insight that I missed? I will, I will talk about that. I also mentioned John chapter 11. Um, there's a reason why John chapter 11 popped back into my mind today, and, and you'll get that. You'll get the reason why. As you hear me talk about the insight from St. Thomas Aquinas, there's a natural flow that you're going to have from John chapter 11. Remember, John chapter 11 was the gospel, not this past Sunday, Palm Sunday, but the Sunday before, if you were in a church that um, was um, using those gospels, that was one of the options. Um, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is John chapter 11. And I started to walk through insights on that last week. And well, not only did I not finish, I barely got going. I only covered five verses. And so um, there's a link, though, between those two, and that's what brought John chapter 11 back to my mind, because I think that there's a very relevant message for us today about, really, frankly, the need to stand up with courage, with courage, and to push back against the forces that are coming against children and attempting to undermine and overthrow the family. It's really demonic. It really is. It's this transgender ideology that has taken root. It's the comprehensive sexuality education that has taken hold. And it's finally the case that parents and uh, some media sources are drawing attention to this at school board meetings and uh, bringing it out into the open and waking parents up. We talk about being woke. This is waking up parents uh, and any concerned citizen about the devastation, the tremendous darkness that is being sown into the minds and hearts of kids today through this transgender ideology embodied in the comprehensive sexuality education curricula that is um, that has been in, implemented in the public school systems here in the state of Washington. And all I can say is, my brothers and sisters, if we can't battle for our children's innocence, if we can't battle for our children's right to be informed by their parents, if we can't see the way in which teachers and school systems and this policy itself as it's being implemented in this curricula is an attempt to undermine and overthrow the, uh, the role of parents in the lives of their kids regarding fostering an authentic understanding of sexual identity. If we are not woken up to this and saying, 
if this is a hill to, to die on, this is a this is a battle that we have to do. You're talking about five, six, seven, eight-year-old little kids who are being exposed to devastating darkness, confusion and brokenness, to lies, and then to tweens and teens that are being led into bondage, darkness, into uh, demonic uh, uh, spiritual uh, darkness regarding their own sense of sexual identity. It's horrific. It's terrible. And we, we have to do more. There are some who are doing some things, but for too many of us, we just are not being bothered. Well, I've kind of jumped way ahead. I've jumped right into the deep end there. There you go. Uh, because God made us male and female. God made us male and female. This is not complicated, and yet it has become so complicated through the dark lies, the demonic errors that are being sown through comprehensive sexuality education. And it's that it's that simple. It's not that it's easy, but it's simple to understand. But the battle is waging. And many, many, many more adults have to stand up on behalf of their kids, on behalf of the innocence of children, on behalf of families who are not maybe ever going to get involved. And kids' lives are at stake. Kids' lives, kids' senses of peaceful identity. And uh, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. So welcome to Holy Week, right? All right. So before I I go back to uh, the Summa Theologica and the third part, that question that I was discussing yesterday, and then to John chapter 11. And by the way, we're going to see how those both of those sources are going to lead us to hopefully an invigorated uh, commitment to battle, to fight, to push back, and um, and to realize that we have to take action, right? And and if we 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 can take action at multiple levels. We can take action at the level of policy, at the level of, of laws, at the level of um, communication out, uh, at the level of school boards, but then also there's just the level of our own families. Just have to battle harder. It's a fierce battle, and it's coming at your kids. It's coming for your kids. And so uh, it's, it's, it's going to be up to us to make the decisions that we need to make for the sake of the well-being of our families. And if we can't fight every battle. You have to at least fight that battle for your children and your grandchildren. You just have to. Okay. Um, But before we do that, something life-giving, something beautiful, something healthy, something lovely. And it was something that happened earlier this evening. So it's Tuesday night when I'm recording this. You're hearing this on Wednesday morning. And I got back about an hour ago from my daughter, uh, Annalise, she's in seventh grade, her junior high school basketball party. Now, why is this a big deal? Why is this important at all? Well, it has to do with the, the role of parents uh, and coaches in the lives of, of young people and the influence that we can have and the difference we can make and uh, the role that God uh, offers to us um, and, well, and frankly, the vocation that God gives to us. Um, as parents. But um, I I said yes to being a coach for my daughter's team. And you've heard me mention it now and again, including a couple days ago when I was sharing a couple of humble admissions of what happened over the tournament. But this was about celebration. And this was about affirmation. This was about building up the the girls on the team and expressing gratitude for many um, people who were involved in making it a great year. So uh, I just want to highlight a couple of things. And the first is this. 
that it's not easy for people, for Christians, for Catholic Christians, uh, to be affirming. It, it, it's not a natural thing. You know, you can be naturally positive. You can be naturally enthusiastic. You can have a natural sort of cheerleading kind of personality, right? All those things are true. But to be authentically affirming, to be able to build up through speech in a, in a way that is graceful, it is really, it's a gift from God, but it's also a skill you can develop. And I, and I share this because when the gift is used well, it can make such a difference. And so my first word of encouragement to you is to, um, to, to hear the testimony that I'm going to share with you, but then also to be thinking about how does affirmation or speech that builds up rather than tears down, speech that builds up rather than tears down, is a part of your own um, way of life. You see, some of us have personalities that are uh, that like incline against it. Some of us have upbringings where we never received affirmation. We were, you know, we grew up in homes where it was much more common to be critical. And in critical doesn't mean not loving, right? Critical doesn't mean not loving, but there are many people in my generation, right? I'm in my, well, I wanted to say mid 50s, but it's 57. I'm almost 57 and a half, so I'm almost <laughs> in my late 50s. Oh, that's kind of scary. Uh, that uh, we didn't receive a lot of affirmation. And as a result of that, we, maybe we received more the challenge. Like, hey, here's the gap that exists in your life. You need to close that gap. You need to improve. You need to perform. You need to do better. So there are many things that can hold us back from uh, being able to affirm well. And one of, believe it or not, one of the biggest things that holds us back from um, being not being very good at being affirming is sin. One of the thing, one one of the other things that holds us back from being affirming is a um, a deficit in our own personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Boy, I know that sounds kind of weird, right? Because those two things are so general, sin and um, the, the the need to go deeper in our relationship with Jesus. But how do those specifically connect to the reality of affirmation? And what can we do about it? And how do we affirm? Right? So real quickly, um, let me start with the, the end and, and the power and the beauty and the gift of affirmation. So uh, at the evening, uh, we gathered everyone together. And I had a chance to, again, gather the parents with the kiddos that were on the team. And I brought the girls up in small groups. There were 17 girls. And for each girl, I had taken some time, some thought uh, to, to, to that girl specifically and thought about like a moment during a practice or a game, something they said or did during a practice or a game that was um, was was beautiful, was worthy of being drawn out, brought into the open, lifted up in front of the parents as a way to celebrate that young lady. Right? These are sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And the fact that it, this, this took some time, 
right? This took some effort. This took some thought to, to say, okay, how am I going to affirm this one? So it just doesn't sound general. It's specific, right? That, that's one of the characteristics of affirming is you want it to be specific and not general. Um, you want it to be measured and not flattery, Right? So you don't just go to the extreme and just speaking with intensity and, 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 and going on and on and puffing up. No, you, you, you're measured about it. Like you stay within the realm of this is the gift that I saw you bring. And, and you do it in a way that's not comparative. That's one of the things that um, a lot of people settle for in affirming is they'll settle for sarcasm or comparing with the negative. So they'll say something like, boy, when you first got here, you were terrible. Or, boy, your attitude really got better as the season went on, thinking that that's an affirmation. Well, look, I was talking about an improvement, but talking about it in relationship to a negative is not a, um, a life-giving way to affirm. So some of these characteristics of affirmation, right, be, um, uh, be specific instead of general, be... Uh, measured rather than uh, being too puffed up and, and expressing flattery, uh, being uh, stated in a positive way rather than in a comparative way, rather than with a, a sarcastic way, and then letting it be near in time, right? So our season just ended on Saturday, and so I was able to uh, affirm the girls from just the time during the season. So it was near in time for when I was able to do that. It has such power, right? It has such power that uh, it can really build up these young ladies. So I took the time, I took the effort to come up with a specific affirmation, and I had them come up in groups. And uh, I was limited in, in how much time I gave to any one girl. And yet it was, it was a way in which the girls could be seen together, but also drawn out individually in the gift that each girl is and the gifts that that particular girl has. Okay, did you hear what I just said? That's another qualification here. When you're affirming, you're, you're attempting to affirm not only the gifts they have, because that's something that can remain a bit distant from their sense of identity, but you want to focus on the gift that each person is, your presence, uh, what you brought to the uh, what you brought to the team just by being there, just by showing up, right? That, that really points to the uniqueness of each person, the dignity that is theirs as someone created in the image and likeness of God and regenerated through baptism into a child of God. That means Christ is alive in them. That means Christ's spirit is in them. That means they radiate something of God's presence, his beauty and truth and goodness. Something of Christ's presence happens um, when they appear. And so being able to elicit that, to draw that out, to name that and lift that up uh, in a way that also identifies the gift that the gifts that they have is very powerful. And it's a beautiful thing. And I, I watched these girls just smile and drink it in like a sponge. Back in a minute. Welcome back to Sound Insight. So it's great to be with you today. And uh, I'm beginning in this first part of the program um, with something that's positive, something that's uplifting, hopefully something that you can take away. You can take away and bring into your own life. So as I share about the power and importance of affirmation, um, I'm giving you some tips, some tactics, some some principles for or attributes of authentic affirmation so that as you are thinking about who, who can I affirm today? Who can I affirm today? What can I say to them? Think about it and just say that, you know what, it might not come out right, 
might not come out really beautiful and, and, um, and perfect, but it's worth doing. It's worth doing. I'm going to speak in a way that's positive and upbuilding rather than tearing down and, and all of those other characteristics that I said. Now, I've just given you some practical equipping, right? But even with that equipping, there are things that hold us back from being um, really good at affirmation. The one is practice. It's going to take some practice. And so don't think that you're just going to get it right the first time. It'll feel awkward. It'll feel foreign. When you when you first do it, you might stumble and get it wrong. Don't let these things stop you. You'll actually get spiritually attacked by, uh, by the devil. Uh, you'll be attacked because the devil doesn't want you building each other up. The devil doesn't want you speaking from that life-giving place to help others come alive because of the words you speak that build them up. No, the, the devil's going to come against that. But all of those things um, shouldn't stop you but should give you that sense of um, uh, diligence and um, the, the courage to say, I'm going to do this. So here we are during Holy Week. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to think about who can I affirm today? Who is someone that I can affirm today? Be specific, not general. Be measured, not flattery. Let it be stated in a specific way, uh, in a positive way, not in contrast to a negative um, let it be done in a way that is um, identifying that the, per, the the person as a gift, the gift that that person is, and the difference that that person makes through the gifts that they have. So those are all things that you can draw out in a word of affirmation. And so think about it. Like, what am I going to say? And then, you know, weave it into the conversation. You can, you can do it in, in ways that are casual, not that big a deal. It's just like, wow, boy, you're such a gift. I just you know, the, uh, you, when you come here, you always just bring a wonderful light presence into the room. I just really appreciate you, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Not that complicated, but boy, isn't that hard to do? Isn't that hard to say? Well, I, I tell you, you'll have such an impact on your loved one's lives if you can grow in your gift of uh, affirmation, of building up. I mentioned there are two two ways Two things, one that holds us back and one that can help us go deeper into it. The first is sin. Why does sin hold us back from affirming well? Well, it's because of an insight John Paul II draws out of our tradition, and he highlights very powerfully as a phenomenologist, he, and as someone who uh, writes in a way that is very existential, he draws on the experience that uh, we have of, um, of our own life of faith, and he draws out the fact that when we sin, we're not only doing something that is broken and dark and hateful in the world, but even more profoundly has a broken, dark, and hateful impact on ourselves. We become hateful to ourselves. You've heard me say that before. Take that seriously. Take that seriously. If you have kids that sin, they begin to hate themselves. They begin to hate themselves. They will imagine, why would you like me? Just here, you ever, you ever bump into that? I talk to my kids sometimes and say, oh, yeah, I can't believe this person likes me. And I'm not talking about attracted. I mean, this person wants to be friends with me. This person's being kind to me. Why would someone want to do that? And there, you know, you can say there are a, a whole ball of reasons, but one of the reasons is that when we sin, we're doing something hateful and we become hateful to ourselves. We have a sense of disgust towards ourselves. I'm not saying we feel it at a very profound existential level, but there is in the depths of our heart, in our consciousness, this sense of self-hatred. And when we have a sense of that kind of darkness towards ourselves, guess what we have a really hard time doing? Being affirming of someone else because we have that sense of darkness within ourselves. And so 
there is a solution to that. And that solution is let the light of Christ in, let the presence of Christ in, let the power of Christ in, let the healing of Christ come into our lives, into the core of our being, and allow the Lord to love you. Allow the Lord to love you. That was a part of what I talked about so, um, I I focused on so greatly in John chapter 11 last week was uh, Lazarus, Jesus loved Lazarus. And just, and he loved Martha and her sister very much. And I tried to highlight the fact that your life will be changed if you just say, Jesus, love me very much. Jesus, you do love me very much, but give me the grace to know and to experience the very much love that you have for me. And when you ask for that, seek that, knock for that, and give the Lord space to love you. What does that mean? Give the Lord space to love you. What that means is is don't just run from prayer. Give the Lord a good amount of time. Give the Lord a good amount of time. Well, what what do you have to do to let him love you? Just be there. Well, what does that mean, just be there? It means just be there. If you have a hard time just being there, well, then read the Psalms. Read the Gospel. Read the scripture of the day, um, allow uh, some beautiful holy music to be present in the background. You don't have to worry about the words and the singing. Just let the beautiful music be there. And just This is that whole contemplative attitude. This is that attitude of just learning to be present. But you do so in a way that's also open. You're being open. You're being available to the love of the Lord. And if you let the Lord love you, then guess what will happen? He'll wash over that part of yourself, the core of your being that hates yourself, the part of your being that wants to wall yourself up for fear of being rejected. Why would the Lord want to love me and embrace me because I'm so bad? But let him wash over you, wash over you, wash over you with his love. It'll seep in, it'll sink in, it'll soak in. And it'll begin to introduce light into the darkness, freedom from that bondage. You'll begin to sever some of those bonds of self-hatred, and you'll begin to be set free. Now, guess what happens when you're set free by the love of the Lord, when you know how much the Lord loves you? And then guess what? The Lord loves you not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, not because you made it happen, not because you figured it out, but because He's love. He's love, and He's madly in love with you. He loves you very much. And as you come to experience the celebration of God over you, the joy that God takes in you, the smile that God has, the delight that he has in you. As you allow that to happen in your life, you become unbound and set free, unbound and set free. And as you're unbound and set free, guess what you begin to be free to do? Affirmation. You begin to be free to affirm others. Wow. So when I say that affirmation is a gift and a skill, Yeah, the skill part, you can learn the features of authentic affirmation. You can practice and prepare for the affirmation that you're going to give. And you should, because it is a skill. And it'll take some practice. And and for some, it's going to be less natural. Uh, It's going to be more foreign because of temperament, personal history, because of the history of the relationship uh, that you're going to be speaking into. So it's just going to be less common. However... At the same time, there is that reality of the gift. The reality of the gift. It's a grace. And so you can ask for that grace. 
Lord, give me the grace to affirm well. Lord, give me the grace I need to be open to receive the love you have for me so I can become gentle with myself. I can be freed from self-hatred and disgust. And Lord, that you will free me to be able to love and to speak from love to others. You see, as you come to know more powerfully and profoundly the gift that you are in the eyes of God, the more that you'll be able to speak in a way that says, I see that person as a gift too. I see the gift quality of that person because the Lord has revealed to me the gift quality of my own life. And boy, what do I realize? It's not just my own life. It's also everybody else's life as well. So, so there you have it. So boy, that's, that's an awful lot of background to say I'm standing up in front of this group today and just talking to these young ladies about, um, uh, about the year and affirming them individually, but also as a group. Now, I mentioned to you that these are 6th, 7th, and 8th grade girls. Well, guess what 6th, 7th, and 8th grade girls are going to be struggling with? They're going to be struggling with their own sense of belonging, their own sense of identity, right? These tween years, early teen years, what's happening in the lives, in the consciousness of young men and women. And I'll, I'll focus just on the women, but on young men and women, is the dawning of self-awareness, the dawning of self-awareness. They become aware of their own I. I am a person. Prior to that, there is more what's called tacit awareness. There's less direct awareness of one's own sense of self. And so it is more embedded in the relationship what relationship? Family relationships. So their own sense of being embedded in the family, it's the sense of family that gives them their sense of identity. It's their family, their mom, their dad, their siblings, their family unit, their home that gives them that sense of belonging. This is where I belong. This is where I find my sense of identity. But along with the tween years and the dawning of self-awareness is this sense of where do I belong now? Where do I fit in? And for young ladies, this is hard. This is harder than for young men. Why? Well, if you take a look at our tradition, if you take a look at spiritual writers, past and present, and you talk about the deadly sins as being present in each and all of us, there is a way in which men struggle with a particular deadly sin more prominently than women, and there is a uh, a deadly sin that women struggle with more prominently than men. Guess what? God made us male and female, and this manifests itself even in things like the dynamics of one's sense of self uh, and um, their own growth in self-awareness. So what's the sin that the, uh, young men will struggle with as they reach... Uh, as they reach that dawning of self-awareness, puberty, right, in the tween and early teen years? Well, for young men, among the seven deadly sins is lust. So that's one that will emerge and uh, be very prominent and a place of battle for young men. But I'm not here to talk about that today. I'm here to talk about the women. So the women's side, what's the women's sin? And I, I can give you my own anecdotal confirmation of this. When I would speak at women's conferences and retreats over the past 30 years, and I would uh, if if the talk showed up and I talked about 
like the gift, the feminine genius and, and masculine magnanimity and, and would talk about um, the, the battles that, that are distinctly, um, not distinctly uh, associated with being a woman, but more prominently associated with being a woman in association with the deadly, seven deadly sins. It was very clear. It was very clear. It was envy. Envy. And what is envy specifically? Envy is not jealousy. Jealousy is I want what you have. Uh, envy is I'm sad about what you have. So jealousy, I want what you have. Envy is I'm sad about the good that you are, you have, that you are receiving, that you are realizing in your life. Uh, I'm sad about that. I'm, I'm upset about that. I'm bothered by that. And so as young ladies are, like again, these sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, as they are dawning into that time in their lives, you have this essentially competitive sin, comparative sin, manifesting itself because they all want to belong. They all want to belong because they're trying to get a sense of their own identity apart from their parents. Remember, that embedded sense of self-awareness is now floating around and looking and saying, where do I belong? How do I look? How do I feel about myself? How do I feel about my body? How do I feel about what's happening inside of me? How do I fit in? How The dynamics and, and the relationships that are happening around me in my school, in my friendships, in my neighborhood. And in the midst of that, they're on a basketball team together. And on a basketball team together, one of the most natural things to have happen, one of the most common things to have happen is what? A focus not on the gift quality of each of the kids, but on the gifts, the different giftings, the different levels of ability. Let's make it simple, the different talent level or skill development level of the girls that are playing. And the most natural thing in the world is what? To have the girls that are better, they get the applause, they get noticed, they get the attention, they get celebrated. And the girls that are struggling, they get a seat at the end of the bench. And that was exactly what I was attempting to avoid this season. And I emphasized Romans chapter 12 that talks about there are many parts in the body. Everyone is a member of the body of Christ. We have that equal dignity. But we have different parts to play because of the gifts we've been given and the graces that are there. And so my challenge to the girls that were more gifted and who had developed those gifts and talents was that they were to have a mission, and that mission was to help their other teammates get better. So they were to help, help their, that was, they were gonna use their gifts to help their teammates get better. That was the emphasis. And the girls that um, wanted to, uh, they were just starting out in playing, it was their task to enter in and try their best to, to grow in their understanding of the game, to grow in their skill level, and to, um, and to be open to, to learn and to practice uh, so that they could improve. And so that was that was the ideal, right? That was the ideal. And um, it was, well, it was just frankly beautiful what happened in the course of the season because here you have these young ladies and to see how they celebrated each other, to see how they supported each other, encouraged each other. Uh, for me, it was um, it was a situation that was ripe for fostering envy that became a beautiful experience of celebrating uh, each girl's own gifting and the part that each played on the team. 
I, I, it was, a, I felt very, very good about that. It's like mission accomplished. All right, back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. So uh, just to finish up, to wrap up this, this experience of, the, of this team party that I was talking about, this junior high girls basketball team party, as, as the coach, I was in front and, and I was acknowledging and, and expressing gratitude for the different parents and uh, staff at the, at the Oaks that were um, helping to make the season a success. Um, for me, I wanted the, the end of the season party to be a, a beautiful opportunity to, um, to, to manifest the Christian spirit of, of affirmation and of being members of the body of Christ, right? That uh, and there was no place for envy, that that, would, that was not something that we would support, and we wouldn't promote a dynamic on the team that fostered envy. And so uh, there were a couple of neat, simple stories I'll end with that highlighted the, the fruit of what we uh, intentionally attempted to foster on the team. The first was um, one girl in the last game of the season. Uh, she wasn't a starter, but she improved quite a bit as the season went on. Um, she shot a three-point shot and went in. And it was amazing. And it was like, wow, the first one she made all season. And then a little while later, she came down from the same spot, shot another three-point shot, and it went in. And it was like, are you kidding me? Well, the beautiful thing that happened at that point was that she, after making that second three, turned not to the crowd and made like making a she could have turned to the crowd and made a gesture that was like yeah that's right i just hit another three like i'm money she could have uh, taunted the other players like yeah in your face i i got this instead she turned to her teammates on the bench and she had this like jaw-dropping wide open look of astonishment on her face like pure joy like can you believe that and, the, and her teammates on the bench were just screaming with delight. They weren't jealous. They weren't envious. They, they weren't, hey, how come that wasn't me? They were so excited for her. And she, in making that shot, was so excited about what happened, she wanted to turn towards her teammates to celebrate with them. That, for me, was so beautiful. That, that's something that we can foster if we... Uh, if we approach the concept of coaching, if we approach the concept of family life, how do we foster that sense of we want to be able to celebrate the good things that happen in the lives of those that we are in the same family with, in the same class with, in this on the same team with, in the same neighborhood with, right? No room for envy. And the other one was there was a, a, a young lady playing for the first time, uh, first season, and she had just not yet scored. The last player on the team to, to score a basket. And it was in the fourth quarter, and we designed a play to get her a shot. And we worked it a couple of ways, and, and she, got, uh, she got the ball, shot the ball, and it went in. <laughs> it was a miracle. It went in. And... She got so excited. Well, my team got so excited that one of the players ran onto the floor just to 
like hug her. She was so excited about the whole thing. <laughs> and the ref said to me, look, Tom, call a timeout or are you getting a technical foul? A timeout, timeout, it's a timeout, absolutely. We're not gonna get a technical foul for the kids running on the floor. But as soon as I called timeout, all the girls ran out onto the floor to celebrate this girl who'd been laboring in practice and in games all year, had yet to succeed. And she finally got a basket. And it was like she had won the, it was like a winning shot. Right, And it wasn't a winning shot for this, but it was winning for her. It was a winning experience for the team because there wasn't that sense of envy. So I share this with you because if you have uh, tweenagers or teenage girls, just realize that a sin that they would likely or easily struggle with is envy because they want to belong and they want to be named, known, acknowledged, and celebrated. They want to be affirmed. But one of the ways that in a fallen world, they will often attempt to accomplish those things, which are good things, they'll attempt to accomplish them in bad ways, by becoming catty, by becoming um, uh, mean girls, right? negative, they can be exclusive. And in doing so, by attempting to put down someone else, they are attempting to lift themselves up as good. And so don't settle for that. Do not settle for that. Don't allow that to be fostered in your, in your kids, but just be aware of that for your daughters, that no room for envy. Envy should be uprooted. It, it, it's ugly in parents, and it is ugly in kids. And it is, it's one of those obvious um, sins that... Um, we have an opportunity, if we have an opportunity to uproot it, like on a sports team, 100%, what a gift to be able to do that. What a gift. So that was my goal. That was, that was one of my goals. I never said it to the parents. <laughs> I, said it on, I said it at the party at the end that um, the way that I was coaching was an, a conscious, intentional attempt to um, do everything to uproot any envy that existed and to foster a sense of sisterly care, compassion, and celebration uh, that... Uh, can be a beautiful, memorable experience, right, for their lives. And, oh, by the way, we won. You know, we won the whole thing. So, um, it, but you know what? Even if we didn't, even if we didn't win the whole thing, it could still be just an amazing year. Amazing year from the standpoint of the uh, Christian character, the development of character that um, that was uh, present uh, in 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 the practices and in the games, so uh, I, that that's what I wanted to share with you. Okay, go, I want to go back to the Summa Theologica from yesterday. Uh, I was referring to the five reasons why Saint Thomas Aquinas said it was fitting that Jesus, after he rose from the dead, uh, retained uh, five wounds. Not all of his wounds; he was healed of most of the damage. Right in his glorified body, did not show signs of the crown of thorns and the beatings and the bruises and the the scourging and the the buffeting and the, the spitting, right? all of the the things that happened to him. No, but there were five wounds: his hands and his feet and his side. All that happened on the cross. Talk about pointing to the particular aspect or moment of suffering that he underwent. But Aquinas said that. These wounds are trophies in heaven. These wounds are particular, will we'll, we'll display a distinct form of glory in heaven. 
they'll be distinctly beautiful because of God's grace. And that, that was the first reason Aquinas gives for them uh, remaining on the, on the body of Christ. The point that I did not mention yesterday, it's like, how did I not mention this? This is really like the, the most important point of all of the reasons is that we do suffer. I, and I kind of mentioned this towards the very end of my sharing yesterday is that we do suffer, but do you realize that when you get to heaven, you have an opportunity to hoist a trophy. You have, a, you have an opportunity to display some trophies. Tonight at our, at our uh, victory celebration, we had the trophy. The first place, we won. That was our trophy. It was a sign of the victory. Well, that trophy doesn't get to come to heaven. Heaven doesn't care about a first place finish in a tournament for a junior high basketball league. Uh, it doesn't mean a thing. does not matter. What does matter are the trophies that we can display in heaven that are involved with the suffering that we endure through, with, and in Jesus here on earth. We are so wimpy. We are so weak. We so quickly choose comfort and ease. We are so accustomed to doing what is pleasant and soft that we are missing out on trophy-gaining opportunities that this life puts in front of us. Trophy-giving opportunities are opportunities for us to experience a share in Christ's passion and death, his redemptive passion and death. death. Think about what Jesus called blessed in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when they persecute you, when you suffer, uh, when they accuse you falsely for my name. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven will be great. How many of us want to have a great reward in heaven? How many of us really stop and ask, this earth, time on earth passes so fast, so quick, just like that. Carrie and I were talking on the way home from the party, and it's like next year we're going to have our fifth kid is going to be the oldest in the house. And it's like, I can't believe that. My little boy, my little boy, well, he's now 16, not a little boy anymore, but he's going to be the oldest in the house. Whoa, this is crazy. And Carrie's like, yeah, I got sad. Time is going by so fast. I know some of you are thinking, you you have no idea. It's only going to speed up even faster. Yeah, but, 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 uh, we have a chance to get some trophies. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about trophies and uh, John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. You want a trophy? You want it more than a participation award? How about you listen to the first reading in the Office of Readings from Tuesday? Since we are surrounded by the cloud of witnesses, that's the saints in heaven. Since we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, all of heaven is watching you right now. The Blessed Mother, Saint Joseph, your patron saints, your guardian angels, your loved ones that have gone before you in faith, they are watching you. Lots of folks in the stands watching the tournament on Saturday. Lots of folks watching their kids play on that court 
the stands of heaven are watching earth. You, <laughs> heaven might be invisible to earth. Earth is not invisible to heaven. This great cloud of witnesses, because of that, let us lay aside every encumbrance of sin which clings to us and persevere in running the race which lies ahead. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus who inspires and perfects our faith. For the sake of the joy which lay before him, he endured the cross heedless of its shame. He has taken a seat at the right of the throne of God. Remember how he endured the opposition of sinners. Hence, do not grow despondent or abandon the struggle. In your fight against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. In your fight against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. It's true. We haven't. So we have heaven watching, patient saints, guardian angels, and we're being given the opportunity to get some trophies. Trophies not for here, but trophies for heaven. Trophies in the form of the wounds of Christ. What are going to be our trophies in heaven? Well, I propose to you one of the trophies that we can get is by entering the battle against comprehensive sexuality education, entering the battle against transgender ideology and the way that it is infiltrating our businesses, our schools, our communities, our festivals, the curricula that are, uh, that are being poured out upon our kids. If we stand silently, if we stand passively, if we don't take more action to get involved at our own public schools, school councils, in our own parishes, priests, you've got to get, you've got to stand up and you've got to fire up your people to speak the truth that God made us male and female. It's a life-giving truth. It's a flourishing truth. It's a good truth. And if we don't do that, we will be held accountable. You will be held accountable. Bishops, if you don't stand up stronger, louder, uh, and push back against these ideologies that are infiltrating our school systems in their curricula, devastating the innocence of kids' lives by introducing them to sexual themes, sexual matters, and a perverse understanding of sexual identity. It's perverse. It's demonic. It's dark. It is deadening. It is bondage-bringing. It is going to diminish the, the strength of parents' influence over their kids because of what this curricula says about, you may have heard it said that God made us male and female. They don't say it like that. But you know what? How do you feel in your body? How do you feel in your mind? How do you feel about yourself? And subtly, pervasively, with intimidation, cleverly, with entertainment, swirling around your kids, leading them to confusion, robbing them of innocence, robbing them of a latency period. Remember I talked about the tween years as years where there's a dawning of self-awareness? That's the tween years. That's 9 to 12. That is not in these five, six, seven, eight years old, these young kids, in these tween years, you ought to be saying, okay, these kids are going to move from a sense of naive innocence, this latency period where they're not focused in, in an objective way, a reflexive way on their own self as being a gendered being. There's, there's a tremendous degree of innocence involved here that, that gets betrayed and destroyed by this curricula just betrayed and destroyed. And the harmful effects, the destructive effects are coming out. They're coming out into the open. 
the 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 things that are being done to sever kids from their parents when it comes to decisions that they're being just uh, led into, pushed into, asked to consider regarding hormone treatments, regarding uh, sex reassignment surgery, regarding uh, uh, a sense of uh, diminishing the the peaceful conviction that God made us male and female. These things are heinous, they're horrific, they're dangerous, and what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? Are you aware of what your kids or your neighbor's kids are having presented to them in their school system? How many videos do you need to see where parents are showing up at school board meetings and saying, let me read from the curriculum. Let me show from the curriculum what is being taught to third graders. And then they get shut down. They get cut off. And they're saying, that's inappropriate. You can't say that stuff out loud. It's just, it's terrible. It's just terrible. And this is the stuff that's happening in our kids' lives. Now, this is where you have to do something. Now, you might feel overwhelmed and you say, I can't do everything. I don't even know how to get involved in terms of any kind of movement or in any kinds of uh, organizing activity. You can't do every good thing, but you can do some things, especially if you're parents, for your kids. And, and that is take stock. Take stock of where your kids are at school. Do not presume that your kids are not ex- uh, being exposed to this. Presume they are. Presume they are. And, and sadly, um, I'm even talking about at the Catholic high school level. Do not presume that your kids are not being exposed and having promoted to them uh, a transgender ideology basis for their own sense of um, sexual identity. Uh, I, I'm too aware. I'm aware of more than one Catholic high school on the west side in the Archdiocese of Seattle where kids are being having fostered and, and uh, a kind of grooming of their own sense of sexual identity that is happening in, their, in these schools. And in one family, they, they, they moved here. They pulled their kid from the school. They said they watched their daughter's friends just be led into uh, this dark, d- d- vile, demonic approach to sexual identity. And they just said, I had to, I had to rescue my daughter. I couldn't let my daughter stay there. So they, they're moving here where there is a greater sense of peace and, and refreshing, uh, life-giving uh, uh, school opportunities, educational opportunities, where that stuff is just not an issue. It's not an issue because of the families that are going there. It's not an issue. God made a male and female. We're going to promote it. We're going to uh, uh, protect it, defend it, and we're going to foster it in our kids because that's life-giving. It's authentic. It's, it's the truth of God about who we are as human beings. And so uh, that, that needs to be a serious alternative for you if this is something that is washing over your kids. It'll be sewn into their minds and hearts. It will. It just will. Just like uh, gay marriage gets fostered in their kids, just like uh, the, uh, the right to, to, to kill the, the, the unborn child in, in a mother's womb gets fostered in them, just like ending the life of someone who is vulnerable and sick at the end of their lives gets fostered in them. These things that become so popular and uh, legally acceptable are things that get sewn into the minds and hearts of our kids. Do not think that somehow they're immune because in your home you don't talk like that and, and you don't believe that. 
Don't be naive about what will be happening to your kids if they continue to have this stuff like a fire hose coming at them uh, and and uh, being completely surrounding them uh, in their social circles online and on social media platforms. And so we have to fight. We have to fight. I do encourage you to go to Informed Parents of Washington, Informed Parents of Washington on Facebook. That page will will show you some of the horrors that I'm talking about from different curricula around the state, Informed Parents of Washington. And then there's the Family Policy Institute of Washington, fpiw.org, fpiw.org. They are leading the battle at the level of legislation and uh, a degree of social organization to take action against it. FPIW. Mark Malosha is doing an amazing job as the executive director there, fpiw.org. A great Catholic guy who is unafraid to speak up, push back, and stand out. We need more like him. We need more like the Family Policy Institute of Washington. We need more like Informed Parents of Washington. But those are just barely scratching the surface of the kind of effort that is needed. And, And what it means is we need more people making the effort And so I just offered you the opportunity for a trophy, a big trophy. You might lose your job. You might lose your social standing. You might lose your reputation. You might lose some friendships. You might end up uh, facing uh, vehement opposition uh, in in a variety of ways in your own life. Uh, You might have to uproot your family and move. These are opportunities for trophies. Do you want some trophies in heaven? There are, there's a way to draw close to Christ and his passion here on earth. And so that's what I'm offering today. That's what the world is offering you. And the question is, will we say yes? Are we willing to enter into that battle? We have an opportunity to celebrate and affirm God's goodness, overcome envy, and be an affirming people. And yet at the same time, we can't be blind to the battles, the spiritual warfare that is part of our time and the part that God is calling us to play. Don't, don't be naive. You're called to battle. You just are. Welcome to Holy Week. All right, God bless your day. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.